I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Welcome to the third world called America. Bionic. Now, where did that come from? Is this a foreshadowing of something you're going to talk about? Yeah, it's probably several stories, but, uh, okay. you know, it's right. like 1984 all over again here. Yes, uh, 27, 28 years later. Yep. Okay. They're just a little behind schedule on the, yeah. On yeah. the, the massive sort of thing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you for another Future Quake show. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to be doing today our very last Tomorrow's Tremors, or today's review of the future's news. Mm-hmm. How like I've used that term in a while? Have not actually. I don't think I've ever used that term. <laughs> well, I don't know if you remember the terms that you use. But, no, uh, I don't. It's funny, man. People will people will send me emails and stuff, mm-hmm. and, and and Facebook messages, and go, man, I listened to show number two forty three, and you mentioned this blah 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 thing obliquely. Do you yeah. have a link to that? I'm like. I don't remember that. There was just something I was yeah. studying at that yeah. time. Or even something, something last week. Yeah. yeah. Or even today. Or even today. I yeah. forget to wear pants sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you know, we have policies here on the Future Quake. I know. Yeah. I've been... I've been the Soviet security has met you I've been gate. barred from the door several times. I know. Yeah. They're like, don't you know who I am? And they're like, yeah, but you have to wear a shirt to get in here. Yeah. Paro, Paro and the other oh. bloodhounds usually. I wonder why it's so cold in here. Trace you in here. I tell you, people can tell they've not heard back from the bible here we're, we're a little different cut it yeah cut we, don't have here. A, we don't have a ridiculous sort of neuro-linguistic programming lilt and you know sort of yeah that's what i was thinking avant-garde uh, yeah i was i was talking with a brother last night and we were talking about a y'all weren't like studying the bible were you we, well this is after bible study actually okay. we had a three-hour long bible study and we were talking well, that about, was just written two thousand years ago uh, i know that's awesome. Okay. So what were they saying? Well, we were talking, and I says, yeah, you know, Pastor XYZ uses neuro-linguistic programming and uh, uh, has codified his body language to make points, much like a bad Shakespearean actor. Mm-hmm. And he went, no. I said, yeah. So we pulled him up. I said, okay, now turn the sound off. And you could see that he would intentionally sort of flex all of his muscles yeah. to make to make a new point and would speak with his hands like a politician would, somebody who st- clearly studied how to sort of program hmm. an audience through, um, there's a term for it, hmm. but there's a type of like mass hypnosis that, yeah, they, yeah. you know, politicians use. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, very subtle and weak, but this it's... This is not Reverend Wormbrain you're talking about, is it? No. Okay. It's not him. Okay. So, um, yeah, so we talked about it, and he was kind of floored, I thought. Huh? He's like, really? Look at that. I'll be darned. Well, anything else you want to share with the Futurians while our time moves forward on uh, what's happening in Tom Bionic's world? Uh, let's see. There's just a lot of interesting stuff going on. Just continue to pray. God's closing all sorts of doors. But the cool thing Yay, is... Yay, closing doors. But the cool thing is, is it feels like it's because it's time to, you know, we're going this other direction now. Yeah. You know? Um, and, uh, yeah, man, it's good. Anything you want to say on the direction you're going or not? Um, I hope it's not straight into a wall. Yeah. You know, or the abyss or Sheol or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yep. First well, Timothy chapter two, verses one through fifteen. That's 
that's it right there. Okay. Yeah. So. All right. I'll leave everybody to go and look that up. Sure. Homework assignment. Yep. Um, I guess there's something else. Aren't you wearing something right now? I am wearing the. Am I the first person to wear this shirt? No. You tried it on? Yeah, I tried it on. Okay. Sorry. Did you work out in the yard with it or something? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, no, I am I was, wearing... I was working out in the... Uh, can the webcam see this? The compost you know? pit. Can the web it. feed see this? Yeah. The, what's, uh, it, what's it have on it? It says... It's a black long sleeve shirt, right? It says, eat at Joe's. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it says, futurequake www.futurequake.com. Got a big Futurequake logo on the front. And, and a smaller one on the back, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there are like a million different combinations mm-hmm. at the Futurequake store. What am I drinking out of? You've got a 15-ounce coffee mug. You can hear the slurp for authenticity mm-hmm. that has what on it? Uh, a picture of you and some guy with my hair. Tom Bionic. And... Three chins. <laughs> he's got he's got like uh, bionic armor on, and it's uh, one of the many logos at the mm-hmm. Futurequake store at Zazzle.com. Mm-hmm. If you go to the front of Futurequake.com, look on the upper left-hand corner. There's a couple pictures of a few items there. Click on it. Mm-hmm. You can find, I think, 60 different varieties of logo combinations for shirts. Mm-hmm. And each one of those, if you click on it at, at our Future Quake store at Zazzle.com, you, you find a combination you like, and then you can get a... Uh, uh, I think we have them separate for, for light-colored shirts or dark-colored shirts. But once you pick that, then you go in on the store where it is, and you can get a long sleeve shirt, short sleeve T-shirt. Mm-hmm. You can get a sweatshirt, a hooded shirt. Um, we have all sorts of kind of, uh, I think six different kinds of, uh, drinking cups mm-hmm. where you can either get like a regular, I'm going to put a little post cup. out there for all of the, my Facebook friends out Uh-oh. there. A larger small coffee cup. Uh-huh. You can get, um, a travel mug. You can even have like a big Who's ceramic tome? stein. Who's Tome? Oh, don't give me a hard time. <laughs> I had, I had 76 items to upload and I misspelled Tom, put Tome up there. So yeah, only you would pick that up. It's like your spiritual gift. Yep. So, ladies and gentlemen, go to the front of futurequake.com if you'd like to have some uh, stuff to sport around. The fact that you're a Futurian, um, just click on those pictures in the upper uh, left-hand corner. Fifteen percent off everything. It is. Yeah. It's Azzle. It's Azzle. Yep. Okay. Cool. Yeah, man. Isn't that cool? When did that start? Uh, I don't know. I just saw a little thing here. It says fifteen percent off winter yeah. sale. Wish I would have known before I'd like spent a fortune. Yeah. Getting stuff there. The the Zazzle Futurequake store thing is broken. What? I guess once again I've just sort of exhibited my spiritual gift. Yeah. You mean of cursing things? Yeah. Sticking the mud, messing things up, putting my hand in it. Blah 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 blah. Well, I'm I sorry. think I think what you've sorry, seen, and I'll tell our listeners here this, is that for reasons I will need to investigate, uh, the first picture on your far left, mm-hmm. up at the top of futurequake.com, click on that, you'll go to the store. Click mm-hmm. to the one on the far right uh, of those three pictures for the store. It works. For some mm-hmm. reason, the one in the middle and the text at the bottom are having an issue. Mm-hmm. Why? I don't know, but I'll figure it out. I don't but know. you can get there. What? And if not, if not, just go to zazzle.com forward slash futurequakestore star, and that'll uh, send you there. The, I think the star doesn't work. Star works. You sure? Yes. Trust me. Okay. Trust me. 
Okay. I know. You've got that look like that's the last thing I would do is trust Dr. Future. Well, the only thing Thank I... Thank goodness our Futurians the, do. Okay. The reason I mention it... You know I don't make mistakes. I know. Except, like, every two seconds. No. Okay, let's move on. Another topic. Yeah. Go to the, go to there. <laughs> We've still got uh, a few books of how to overcome the most frightening issues you will face this century. Uh, some uh, part of it that I wrote. And the other one, we've got a whole case of Pandemonium's engine. Uh, talking about Bible prophecy and um, uh, transhumanism and Nimrod. So mm-hmm. check that out. Uh, I want to thank uh, Brother William, who made a donation uh, to Future Quake at the donation button on the front of futurequake.com. And that will help us pay our expenses for mm-hmm. Future Quake, for keeping it up. A lot of people have been emailing us since... Uh, this is our next to the last to the last show mm-hmm. um, about keeping them up long term, keeping the shows. Yeah. That pot of money will be used to keep futurequake.com and all the seven years of shows there. Yeah. So that would be good. That's fat. And um, any other announcements? I, I guess you've heard about David Flynn's passing. Oh, man, I know. It's a bummer. Uh, That's one of those shows that, um, I mean, it. I don't know if it, like, you know, we've been reflecting a little bit, mm-hmm. you and I, off off mic about yeah. the shows and the past and everything. And that was one of those shows that, at the time, I just found so, so interesting. Now, which one? He was on Temple twice. at the Center of Time. Okay, yeah. That was his later visit. Yeah. Yes, his later yeah. visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that really touched me about David was when um, um, I went out to the Ancient of Days conference in 2005, which was a real crucial trip for me out in Roswell, and he spoke um, on a bunch of stuff tying together, like the Garden of Eden, and he even talked about Mars and Freemasonry and stuff, but the thing that I found really sort of a breakthrough on his behalf was he, he looked at a what if, of what if the, 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 the symbols of Freemasonry were not just looked at as construction tools, but as navigational tools, mm-hmm. and the 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 compass and the square were also used in map making, and that led him down a path to tie in together sacred sites like Baalbek, Mount Hermon. It was interesting. Uh, temple and all this other kind of stuff, and um, you know it it went pretty far. I don't know if all the numbers in time all all pan out and everything, but it was a fresh way to look at this kind of stuff. And he was just a unique individual. Mm-hmm. And I know from his own personal testimony that he really loved Jesus and wanted to serve Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he certainly inspired a bunch of people. I, you know, one of the interesting things is that the more that I've read about <clears throat> the early church, that's one been one of my things I've read yeah. I've, a lot of lately. I've read yeah. Ir, uh, Irenaeus and uh, Clement and Mathetes and mm-hmm. I can't remember. Anyway, I've read I've read a couple hundred pages of early mm-hmm. church documents and uh a lot of them, you know, just in that world, a lot of them had a tendency to look at things like David Flynn did, yeah. which I thought was kind of fascinating. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, take that, take that as, as, you know, for what it's worth. But he had, he had this sort of interesting way of looking at things, similar to the way that a lot of uh, people in the early first century mm-hmm. culture would mm-hmm. look at things. And even Isaac Newton, people like that, yep. similar way of mm-hmm. looking at that, mm-hmm. more of the meets the eye in the Bible. But it, I found it a faith reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And something else, David Flynn's Watcher website, mm-hmm. which talked about uh, Mars and its importance in the last days mm-hmm. and dark principalities and powers and things. Um, he had this stuff up, I don't know how early in the 90s. Where I mean, it was like, to me, one of the earliest eras of 
stuff being on the internet. Very early. And he was one of the first people to, that I knew of that was prevalent out there talking about stuff, what I would call alternative Christian media, mm-hmm. about the topics that you're not going to hear from your, your big-time you know, mainstream Christian stuff. Using neuro-linguistic programming. And <laughs> yeah, he no, wasn't. No. But, uh, but uh, I, I, fa- I found it, uh, yeah. <laughs> I found it fascinating that he was a real trailblazer. Mm-hmm. And I know Tom Horn saw him that way and a bunch of other people. So mm-hmm. he is in glory, and he is with his, his Savior. He got to see whether or not his theories worked out. Yeah, and maybe participate in them. Who knows? Yeah. You know, time doesn't mean anything in heaven, so the, the whole fact of well, what are you doing now in heaven is sort of a meaningless kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Everybody's doing everything all the time there. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, if you take the middle knowledge view. So, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, let's get on to some stories, unless you got something else you need to tell people about. Oh, I just, you know, the God loves you guys, and he wants you to come to the mm-hmm. knowledge of, of him. And fear not. Yeah, fear not. You know, you know things things will get worse, but, you know, the Lord's got it all in his hand in some way, shape, or form. He's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> when you sing that, I'm, I'm reminded of that Far Side cartoon where... Like this big flowing roped guy is pulling a gigantic world out of the oven, and yeah. he sniffs it and goes, "Something tells me this thing's only half baked." Ah, and the, ca- ah. the captain is God creates the earth. Oh boy, yeah. Okay, would you like to do a story? Uh, I'd I'd love for you to start actually. Are you sure? Positive. Okay, My, this one is a little different than typical future quake stories. Okay. This is like a neocon. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I've taken over that side now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean it's just not something you may wonder why. No wonder am I reading this. But I think it may hold another key to my evolving thinking about systems and institutions in general. Okay? And some people may have already seen this. This was at CNN.com. It says, Bad Bosses, the Psychopath to Success. Okay? It says... I better turn my mic off for the commentary that I'm going to have with this. It says, One study found senior managers are four times more likely to be a psychopath Often psychopaths mimic rather than feel emotions, often leading to destructive behavior. Oh, totally. Yeah, while associating with violence, psychopathic behavior doesn't necessarily lead to crime. And psychologists believe 1% of people have the mental disorder, which is rooted in genetics. I had a friend of mine who was telling me about one of his bosses. Yeah. I hate to keep interrupting. I've, you know, twice already. I don't know where I am now. Yeah. Um, But he was telling me about how his boss would go. Like, you know, his boss is, like, incredibly fit, yeah. you know, and how his boss would go to the track and run and run and run and run and run until he couldn't run no more, like, a couple times mm. a week, mm. you know, like, li- just run his legs off, basically, yeah. is like runners would say. Yeah. And uh, how he would work, like, like 15 hours a day, the days he didn't go running. Mm. And I started thinking about him, like, that sounds like the unbalanced... Like mentally unbalanced right. of like somebody with a mental problem, right? You know, right? And then he, you know, and then he got fired like a month later for something he didn't do, but the boss pinned on him. And I'm like, hmm, hmm. I wonder if there's something to mm-hmm. this. I'm sorry, I hate. You know, I've got a friend of mine who was in regular ministry mm-hmm. and really just sort of, sort of got fed up with mm-hmm. some stuff that going on there, mm-hmm. and. um some of their talents are sort of becoming obsolete, changes to side. And <clears throat> so they re- reprogram themselves into counseling mm-hmm. and really into full-blown psychological mm-hmm. assistance. And it's booming. 
Yeah. I mean, they, there's no way they can meet the the help for their practice. Mm-hmm. And they're growing and growing and growing. And we forget. And I think that's the thing. When we get worked up, particularly if you work institution, mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you're interacting with so many people on a given day, and they all seem to be letting you down. They all seem to be having some kind of bizarre thing you're having to try to manage out of their mm-hmm. personality. We forget that probably a large part of those people are in some kind of major psychological crisis. Mm-hmm. Whether it's grief, whether it's uh, some other trauma, whether it's just clinical depression or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably going through that themselves. You know? Yeah, I know. They wouldn't be listening to Future Well, Quake that's true. Or they should feel psychological that, trauma. should feel that way at the end of it. But, yeah. um, so, you know, we shouldn't be all shocked. We should sort of be a little more pragmatic and expect this because this, this is a world that we're living in. Anyway, here's some back to the story here. And the reason why I found this interesting is that, you know, over the years, listening to Future Quake, people can pick up that I have gotten pretty jaded toward any institutions. Yep. And particularly the ones that make the biggest claims, you know, of their mm-hmm. their righteousness, like some of our big evangelical ministries, parachurch organizations. And, and the fact that we see stuff that seems to be totally inconsistent with what they say their values are and their decisions mm-hmm. And, and what what this this uh, story will suggest is that in any kind of institution of any size, you should expect, and particularly near psychopaths. the top, yeah, you should people expect who are psychopaths. clinically called psychopaths. And there's no reason why even religious organizations should be the exception. Uh, no, to when this. you when you value when you value measurable productivity, yeah, then of course look at Jesus's ministry during the time he was here. Yeah. He hung out, he preached a bunch, he got a huge crowd and then sent them all away with hard words, and his ministry was 12 dudes over three years. Yeah. Like, if you took that ministry, if you took that to some sort of, like, you know, okay, here's here's what I did, Yeah. you know, 12 people over three years, I prepped them. Yeah. I'd be like, uh... Yeah, um, he probably wouldn't be recognized. You may have the, to decrease your funding. The national national religious broadcasters convention. They probably have an award for him. You're saying? Yeah, that like totally inefficient. Don't yeah yeah. Don't mimic this guy. Well, they uh, might say that anyway, even if they knew who he was. Huh? The CNN story says. Did I say that. Think you suffer from a psycho boss? A small but growing body of global research suggests you might be right. Call it the psychopath to success. Psychopaths. Narcissists guided without conscience, who mimic rather than feel real emotions, bring to mind serial killers such as Ted Bundy or fictional murderers such as Hannibal Lecter or Dexter, the anti-hero of the popular Showtime series. But psychologists say most psychopaths are not behind bars. And at least one study shows people with psychopathic tendencies are four times more likely to be found in senior management. Mm-hmm. Not all psychopaths are in prison. Some are in the boardroom, said Dr. Robert Hare, a Canadian psychologist who is co-author of the book, Snakes and Suits, When Psychopaths Go to Work. Mm-hmm. Is your boss a psycho? Uh, British researcher Clive Bodie mm-hmm. goes further. Body. He thinks 2007 and 2008 financial crisis may have re- resulted in the growing proliferation of psychopathic personalities in the corner office an offshoot of the erosion of single-company employment in the last generation. Hmm. If you worked at a company over the course of 20 or 30 years, 
people got to know what you're like, how they treat people, regardless of how you appeared in an interview, said Body, whose corporate psychopath theory of the global financial crisis was recently published in the journal Business Ethics. He says, obviously these days, as people move job to job every two or three years, that's not possible anymore. In other words, you can hide, you can cover it up yeah. as you're skipping around. Mm-hmm. His paper follows a 2010 study here co-authored that found about 4% of senior managers displayed psychopathic tendencies. I bet it's way higher than that. It could be. Up from the 1% that researchers say could normally be found in society. So four times a month. Well, here are a couple of couple of things that I would note. One thing that I've noticed is that uh, ideologically, a lot of a yeah. lot of graduate school things they shape you intellectually to conform to mm-hmm. to whatever it is that mm-hmm. that that specialty needs. And it's not just necessarily like, let's say I'll, I'll pick on engineers. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, engineering is a you know it's like these things. These are the skills. But part of engineering is making you think like an engineer ideologically you know i mean you've shared you've shared how different your experiences and your views were to most of the people that you worked around yeah right you were sort of you know always mm-hmm. if i may tell on you always sort of saw yourself as a round hole and a square a square peg in a round hole a bit. actually more for my artistic <clears throat> side my creative side which they yeah yeah um almost resented and and that sort of stuff gets sort of you know sliced off mm-hmm. through uh, ideological programming almost in the school, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's a testament to you to, that you were even, you know, you've sort of stuck it out. Came out alive. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it, getting back to this particular study, one thing that's not discussed here is how that, how, you know, how that sort of programming will radically, will radically change deviation of the mean, you know, yeah. You know, it's going to move that way farther towards psychopath because those are the people making decisions. Yeah. So. Well, and I would say too that uh, the schools you were talking about, they actually will show you that people who have those kind of traits are somehow good, good, yeah. that it's attractive, and that you should want to recruit people like mm-hmm. that or emulate them or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, it says uh, uh, psychopaths are great bullies. They feel no remorse or guilt about what they've done, uh, says UK researcher Clive Body. Mm-hmm. People tend to think of psychopaths as criminals. In fact, the majority of psychopaths aren't criminal, said Hare, a pioneer in the study of uh, psychopathy uh, who, has, who developed the first diagnostic test for the mental disorder in 1980. They don't go out and maim, rob, and rape, but find other ways to satisfy themselves without doing something necessarily illegal such as taking risk with someone else's property or money. Which raises a disturbing question. Why are psychopaths four times more likely to be found in senior management? Uh, the successful psychopath. The corporate psychopath brings to mind the character of Patrick Bateman, mm-hmm. the Wall Street banker who, who would kill a colleague over a business card in the movie American Psycho, based on a controversial book by Brett Easton Ellis. In the real world, when I watched that, when I watched that movie, yeah, like I watched it with a couple of friends, and they were kind of like laughing and giggling, and yeah. I'm like, "This isn't funny." I think I know people like this. Yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, there's yeah. the dude, you know, bragging about how he can do a thousand sit-ups and all this stuff, yeah. and I don't know, on and on and on. I'm thinking like, I think I know people like mm-hmm. this. I think I know people like this. Yeah, 
Yeah. Sorry. You can mention my name if you want. Uh, well, I mean, as far as a thousand sit-ups. Yeah, I know you wouldn't mention my name with that. But not, uh, not, No, I mean, you know, you're not a psychopath. You can yeah. just do a thousand sit-ups. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Even during the show. In um, fact, you're um, doing them right now. Yeah. You're not even breaking a sweat. Mm-hmm. No. Just don't go outside. <laughs> okay, in the real working world, however, executives who display psychopathic tendencies are often charismatic charmers on first meeting, emoting confidence that is rooted in deception, psychologists say. I know there's a lot of pastors that would fit in this, too. Mm-hmm. They lie without, well, I don't say lie, some of the top ones do. Mm-hmm. They lie without remorse, steal credit for accomplishments, and are adroit at transferring blame for their mistakes, psychologists said. Psychopaths are more likely to have shallow, short-term sexual relationships, often in the workplace, and are easily bored. They are prone to take risks without concern for the ramifications. Most of us have an image of psychopathy. Yeah, that's inaccurate. We tend to think of the killer, a crazy person. In fact, psychopathy is a personality disorder that may or may not result in criminal behavior, said Paul Babiak, a New York industrial psychologist who has teamed with hair on snakes and suits and arranges studies on psychopaths in the workplace over the last 16 years. Psychopaths are drawn to powerful people and positions. They like to play head games with people and make good money at it, said Babiak, who coaches executives on dealing with psychopathic colleagues. And most of his clients are in the financial services industry. They're not stupid. They can decode what's expected of them and play the part. Office psychopaths are charismatic, which often mask proclivities to steal ideas and play mind games and shift blame. One advantage psychopaths have is they are not swimming in the sea of emotions that color and guide most of our decision-making. Psychopaths are great bullies, said Body. They are cunning and manipulative, and they are great at engineering situations. Although they don't have emotions themselves, they can create emotional situations, Body said. Mm-hmm. The rest of us don't even realize we're being manipulated until it's too late. Oh, some of us do. Yeah. Yeah, I've gotten very good at spotting them. Yeah. I've had to deal with a few of them lately. And the fascinating thing is once you start seeing the the folios of sort of the level of manip- manipulation yeah. that they use, it's like, wow. Just for the sheer scale of this, this is impressive. Yeah. Where have people ever discovered in themselves? I'm, I'm, I'm almost wondering if they might be slightly it. incapable. Yeah, it could. I, you know, who Maybe. knows? Anything's possible. Uh, Babiak and Harris' work exploring psychopaths in the workplace gained traction in the wake of the implosion of Imran and WorldCom at the turn of the century, and is now getting renewed interest after the financial crisis and high-profile fraud cases, such as Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme and the insider trading conviction of fund manager Raz. Resharatham, though there have been no proven claims about the mental states of these people. But much of the study of psychopathy comes from, uh, or psychopathy, whatever you, comes from prisons, not the workplace. And for good reason, Babiak said, a prisoner's past behavior is documented. You're able to test whether they're telling the truth or not from records. You can observe them in social settings. And therein lies the problem with studying the malady and its impact on the workplace. We're having a heck of a time doing this kind of research because companies don't want to know. Sit here, who is advised? No, they just want productivity. There's only yeah. one measurement. Yeah, and then what do they do? Well, they've been a, mm-hmm. Who has advised the FBI and psychopaths, and who helped actress Natalie, Nicole Kidman prepare for her role in the 1993 thriller, uh, thriller *Malice*? The problem also lies with the diagnosis. Squint at the symptoms of psychopathy or psychopathy, 
and in a different light, they can appear as simple office politics or entrepreneurial prowess. Psychopaths believe the rules don't apply to them, Babiak said. They like to play head games with people and make good money at it. Uh, they are gifted at finding the weakness and the insecurities of colleagues. You know, this is good for people to know in case they may discover such a person in groups that they're in. Um, yet that can be dressed as constructive criticism. Psychopaths always turn on the charm to those in power within their corporation and equally turn on the malice to colleagues or subordinates. But isn't that just managing up? They can't get one thing done because they're prone to boredom, but that could be easily called multitasking, Babiak said. Mm -hmm. Just because you have a high temperature and you cough doesn't mean you have pneumonia added here. Suddenly, risk-taking can be beneficial. A lack of empathy can be beneficial if you need to make a rational-based decision. The difference, researchers say, is that most high-flyers display different personas at work versus home. Psychopaths don't vary their behavior. They are hardwired for pathological impulses. Uh, they act this way toward their mother or their daughter, Harris said, damaging family members as deftly as work colleagues. While environmental factors play a part, uh, uh, psychopathy is rooted in biology. Brain scans of psychopaths show areas of the brain that govern emotion and psychopaths aren't as active as a normal adult's. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I was just reading a study that showed that, um, well, back up a couple of steps. Some of our listeners may be, may be uh, uh, familiar with Weston A. Price, a biologist mm -hmm. and, and, and phys uh, physician who discovered that uh, a lot of early developmental problems can be avoided by having, uh, his theory was, it can be avoided by having, eating a, eating a certain kind of diet, eating mm -hmm. good stuff, you know, eating a lot of fat, eating a lot yeah. of high, what he called high vitamin butter and everything. Yeah. And he said, he said, part of the thing is, is that people develop these things because they eat the wrong kind of foods and they're at the wrong kind of flora of bacterium develops in their gut mm. and they just ingest the wrong chemicals and their body is it, it just grows wrong mm. right well they just found out that there's a huge link between autism and other forms of uh sort of uh things like that sort of mental deficiencies mm. uh, and when they studied those people they found people with autism and other things like that had a completely different type of uh bacterial flora in their in their lower intestines than mm. a healthy individual. Hmm. So instead of saying the devil made me do it, you'd say my colon made me do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or the fact that I didn't eat any cod liver oil and high vitamin butter. Yeah. Yep. That that will be my case in it trial. <laughs> yeah. I'm the a problem, victim. The problem is that I didn't eat any steaks mounted with butter. Yeah. You know. Mm. Well, let me wrap this up here. Yeah, man. Um, uh, while environmental factors play a part. Uh, psychopathy is rooted in biology. Brain scans of psychopaths show areas, okay, they're not as active. Show them words freighted with emotional meaning, such as rape, blood, or knife. And their brain activity shows the same reaction if shown tree or rock. What we re refer to as conscience is not a purely intellectual mechanism, but has a strong emotional component. The latter is largely responsible for the difference between knowing the rules of the game and being guided by this knowledge, Hare said. Psychopaths, uninhibited by emotion, are sort of like a car with great power but weak brakes. With turmoil in the markets and rapid changes in corporate landscape, these are golden times for cold career opportunists like psychopaths, psychologists said. 
but the damage done, bad morale, poor teamwork, and effective execution of strategy can be difficult to quantify on corporate bottom lines unless a psychopath veers into actual crime. And crime in the workplace is rising. A November report from PricewaterhouseCoopers shows that global economic crime is rising, a 13% increase since 2009, its world survey, with an average cost per company of $5 million. Most of the crimes are inside jobs. 56% of companies say the offenders were employees. You may have people who defraud your business, ranging from taking change out of the register to stealing tens of thousands, Babiak said. The psychopath sees no difference and feels no remorse. Mm-hmm. So the reason I read that is that I said most institutions that I have, you know, we've talked about and come up here, mm-hmm. I've gotten very leery of anything good coming out of large institutions. And we all know that to some degree. But this is another element of maybe explaining why that may be true is because if you get a large institution, these people, that's where they find their homes. Mm-hmm. They get ingratiated into them. Uh, some of their attributes are seen as positives. Uh, they can do a snow job on the rest. Mm-hmm. And there's other people that are victimized and pay the bill. Well, and one, a lot of them, including leading great ministries uh, or big churches or things like that, in addition to other business institutions. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed in, in some of my dealings is I can think of I can think of one one person now looking back on it based on his body language like he was definitely a psychopath yeah you know and uh just sort of like you know you referring to somebody in the studio pyro <laughs> no okay now this is quite right. quite a few years ago yeah before i was even here in tennessee oh okay. but uh um yeah, you know, and it's interesting. One of the things that has always stuck with me, and I began to sort of notice it with some of the people that I worked around and with, especially mm-hmm. band leaders, is that, you know, you tend to see like that extreme, almost sort of criminal level of narcissism in two places. Mm-hmm. One is in prison, and one is yeah. in the music business. Right. You know, narcissism is what I was thinking about when you had that earlier description of that person. Yeah. And I couldn't think of the term. But that's basically yeah, self-absorption. Yeah, like with in, in a way that's in a way that's like sick. Yeah, yeah, and not somebody was like, wow, that guy's kind of yeah. awfully self-possessed. It's like, yeah, that's not normal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And what's funny, I find that people who are like that way, people can't quite put their finger on it immediately. But they but sense it, it. They make them uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can think of somebody. And they're a bully. They're basically a bully, even if it's just. Indirectly, like they're going to do whatever they please, and everybody else has got to adjust to it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see what happens when you stand up to them, too. You know, yeah. sort of like, you know, like charging an ambush. They don't know what to do. Well, and even if you're just standing up for yourself, sometimes it's perceived that you've done some incredibly selfish thing on your own. Yeah. I find those people think everybody else is selfish. Yeah. You know, um, they're used to being catered to. Mm-hmm. And when you say, well, look, let's have some boundaries here. It's like you're suddenly becoming selfish in their yep. eyes because you won't be rolled over. I don't let them. I don't. That's one of the things that you see a lot in the places where I work. People that that sort of level yeah. of self-absorption. They always try and change the subject, and the thing is to bring them back to it. Go no. Mm-hmm. Answer this question. No. Answer this question. Yeah. Okay, you're not going to answer the question. So I guess we'll at this point we can say without a without a doubt you're not going to answer the question because you can't. Yeah. And that really flame mm-hmm. honks them off either. You know? Good thing we don't see that in the political debates we've been having this time. I love how clear that. I love how when uh, when uh, 
uh, and I figure you've got a story in there somewhere about it, but Ron Paul, you know, said let's let's treat our enemies with the golden rule, treat them like how we yeah. want to be treated. You know, yeah. it got booed. Yeah, by the Bible Belt people in South Carolina. Yeah. 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 Yeah, when you're an exceptional nation, you don't need the golden rule. I know. It's interesting that it's it's interesting that that we tend to see ourselves as this sort of through a mirror, you know, like it's like, you know, like a lumpy midwestern tourist and we look in the look in the mirror and we see like I don't know, Callista Flockhart or something. <laughs> You know, you mean as a representative of a skinny person? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 And uh, um, you know, I, I pick pick whatever star that you would. Yeah. But, you know, um, it's a it's it's sort of it's myopic, you know. And then yeah. when you point it out to people, they don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. They're like, hmm. Can we talk about something else? Well, yeah. speaking of that, can we talk about something else? No, I don't know. I have so much to say about psychopaths. Like. You got a few hours. Um. Anyway, uh, let me let me let me go on here. This is from the Daily Mail, mm-hmm. yeah. British major newspaper. Mm-hmm. Third world America: bodies driven to a pauper's burial in a U-Haul as tough economic times lead to more mass graves, not to mass graves, but to more mass graves. Um. And I would say, folks, that this is a very interesting article. Uh, to just sort of test out the level of media manipulation, mm-hmm. you would think that mass graves in in uh, uh, a suburb of Chicago would be big news. Yeah, but uh, all I can find is one story on it and some local stories. Yeah, I didn't see anything on yeah. TV. Yeah, that should really tell you something about that. Should really tell you about um, you know the level of media manipulation you're seeing, mm-hmm. the clampdown. You know. Um. It's a practice more closely associated with third world countries, but in bleak times in a Chicago area suburb, 30 people were buried in a mass grave on Wednesday. The pauper's burial section at Homewood Memorial Gardens was established for those who could not afford to pay for a burial plot. And it's a, and it's a problem that sweeping America as tough economic times have led to an increase in the number of indigent burials the morgue must perform. No mourners were present for the burial at the cemetery, which lies 20 miles southwest of Chicago. The gruesome discovery of the pauper's burial section at Homewood was made last year, sparking a call for more strict federal regulations for cemeteries. Sheriff's officials had found caskets stacked one on top of another, some buried eight at a time at Homewood, and the morgue had been accused of missing markers and poor record-keeping. I gotta scroll through all the photos of guys dumping pine boxes in a trench. Yeah. But coroners have said the practice is shared in other cities and states across the U.S. Tony Cox, the legislative chairman and former president of the Illinois Coroners and Medical Examiners Association, earlier told the Chicago Sometimes other cities, including New York, follow similar mass burial procedures for those with limited options. New York City Department of Correction spokesman Stephen Morello. Uh, referred to a burial site in Hart Island, New York, where 800,000 bodies lie. Hmm. 800,000? Yep. <clears throat> yes. That's bigger than most major cities in the U.S. Yep. I mean, except for like an exclete, you know, an elite upper tier of cities. Yeah. Well, 800,000? Yeah, the difference between that and and this, though, is like all the people on Hart Island are dead. Yeah. And nobody knows who they are. They're just uh-huh. sort of... Random mass burials. Officials there, he said, 
follow the same procedure, stacking coffins with inmates remaining three deep. Mr. Morello said stillborn babies and children are always buried in individual caskets. Those, too, are stacked on top of one another. The National Funeral Directors Association has called the discovery at Homewood, quote, troubling and called for more federal regulations over cemeteries. Mr. Cox, who also serves as the coroner in downstate Gallatin County, uh, said his office has avoided problems allegedly happening in Homewood. He said cremation has has also become more favored in many cities and states because it's less costly than a traditional burial. So, here you have it. Mass graves. There you go. Wow. Hmm. Woohoo! Well, Mass graves in America. They're already they're already practicing that for the uh, avian bird flu, if you remember. How you could bury them in your like your backyard and stuff, mm-hmm. you know. So, like practicing it like you you like you'd knock you'd knock one of your neighbors off and you know see how fast you get them in the ground or something. Well, no, like you know, people start dying in your house to avian bird flu and you can't go anywhere. Everybody's quarantined, so you gotta start oh. burying them. You know where you are. Yeah. Um, this is a story that is more current events. Okay. Okay. Since war drums are beating right now, I think we need to do some kind of update, particularly if it's something off the beaten path. Um, this is one that actually uh, refers to some Jerusalem Post information. I saw it at PrisonPlanet.com. It says, uh, ex-Israeli intelligence officer says, Pearl Harbor-style attack will be pretext for war on Iran. Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting when I think about what we had with USS Liberty. And how it was staged to be an event to get us into the Six-Day War. Mm-hmm. Um, it says the Jerusalem Post article implies the U.S. will stage provocation to justify military assault. Former Israeli intelligence officer Avi Perry writes that a, quote, surprise Pearl Harbor-style Iranian attack on an American warship in the Persian Gulf will provide the pretext for the U.S. to launch all-out warfare against Iran. Now, remember... Do you remember when uh, uh, Seymour Hush, Hirsch, the uh, um, investigative reporter, talked about Dick Cheney saying when he was there about how they wanted to paint American boats as Iranian I do and have them that. attack yes. us to cause stuff? Remember that. Don't forget that, people. Uh, well, in fact, I'm ahead of myself here. Here, this story mentions this. Given the fact that former uh, VP Dick Cheney's office openly considered staging a false flag attack on a U.S. vessel in the Persian Gulf to blame it on Iran as a pretext for war, Perry's summation of how 2012 will see to a new war cannot be taken lightly. Under the headline, The Looming War with Iran, Perry writes, Iran, just like Nazi Germany in the 40s, will take the initiative and, quote, help the U.S. president and the American public make up their mind by making the first move, by attacking the U.S. carrier in the Persian Gulf. The Iranian attack on an American military vessel will serve as a justification and a pretext for a retaliatory move by the U.S. military action against the Iranian regime. The target would not be Iran's nuclear facilities. The U.S. would retaliate by attacking Iran's navy. Their military installations, this has nothing to do with the nuclear threat, by the way, missile silos, airfields. The U.S. would target Iran's ability to retaliate, to close down the Strait of Hormuz. The U.S. would then follow by targeting the regime itself. Elimination of Iran's nuclear facilities? Yes. This part would turn out to be the final act, the grand finale. 
It might have been the major target had the U.S. initiated the attack. However, under this Pearl Harbor scenario, in which Iran had launched a surprise attack on the U.S. Navy, the U.S. would have had the perfect rationalization to finish them off, to put an end to this ugly game. Perry's use of quotation marks around the word surprise comes across as a literary device to imply that the so-called surprise attack will be not be a surprise at all. Of course, the Pearl Harbor attack, which provided the pretext for America's formal entry into World War II, was not a surprise by any means. It was well known ahead of time. Release Freedom of Information Act files prove that weeks that weeks before the December 7 attack by the Japanese, the United States Navy had intercepted 83 messages from Admiral Yamamoto, which gave them details of precisely when and where the attack would take place. It's also completely nonsensical that Iran would actively seek to provide the world's preeminent nuclear superpower with an easy excuse to justify an attack by deliberately targeting U.S. warships in the Persian Gulf. Perry's article seems to be a tongue-in-cheek admission that the U.S. or Israel will manufacture such an attack. Yeah, I think that's, from history, says that would be the most likely way, because Iran is not stupid. They don't want to, you know, be, be accused of something, but they're trying to be prodded to attack. Mm-hmm. Where where they're they're checkmated with no force other than attack us, but if that doesn't happen, then then we'll just stage our own. Yeah. Um, it says this presumption need not delve into the murky realm of conspiracy theories. History tells us that fake naval attacks have been staged on numerous occasions to hoodwink the American people into supporting wars of aggression. Remember the Maine, the battleship USS Maine blew uh, blew up while it was stationed in Havana Harbor in 1898. Although a Navy investigation could not find a cause of the explosion, the American media, led by a pioneer of yellow journalism, William Randolph Hearst, immediately blamed Spanish saboteurs, whipping the public into war fever. When Hearst sent his reporter, Frederick Remington, to investigate, little of note could be established about the disaster. When Remington asked to be recalled, Hearst told him, Please remain. You furnish the pictures. I'll furnish the war. Hundreds of editorials demanded that the Maine and American honor be avenged. Many Americans agreed. Soon a rallying cry could be heard everywhere, in the papers, on the streets, and in the halls of Congress. Remember the Maine to H-E-L-L with Spain. Mm -hmm. As a result of the incident that many consider either to be an accident or deliberate false flag attack by the U.S. on its own ship, the U.S. was at war with Spain within months. Over 60 years later, another staged event, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, was used as a pretext for the U.S. to launch the Vietnam War. President Johnson told the American public that North Vietnamese torpedo boats launched an unprovoked attack against a U.S. destroyer on routine patrol in the Tonkin Gulf. Leaked cables and reportings of White House telephone conversations later proved that the incident was completely manufactured and that our destroyers were just shooting at phantom targets. There were no PT boats there. According to Navy Squadron Commander James Stockdale, who was flying over the scene that night, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I think he was the VP candidate for, uh, uh, who was the guy that ran third party? The older guy. The, fa- fa- the famous guy, just like a couple of elections Ross ago. Ross Perot. Ross Perot, yeah. Um, there, there, there was almost a 21st century version mirror of the Gulf of Tonkin in, in January 2008, when the U.S. government announced that it had been moments away from opening fire on a group of Iranian patrol boats in the Strait of Hormuz after the boats allegedly broadcast a warning that they were about to attack a U.S. vessel. 
The Iranian warning later turned out to be of dubious origin. I think it was the Filipino monkey was the mm-hmm. heckler that they said it was. But the incident led to a discussion in Vice President Dick Cheney's office about how to start a war with Iran by launching a false flag attack at sea, according to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hersh. The January 2008 Strait of Hormuz incident taught Cheney and other administration insiders that if you get the right incident, the American public will support it. Hersh said there were a dozen ideas proffered about how to trigger a war. The one that interested me on the most was why don't we build, we in our shipyard, build four or five boats that look like Iranian PT boats, put Navy SEALs on them with a lot of arms. The next time one of our boats goes to the Strait of Hormuz, start a shoot up. Might cost some lives. That'd be our guys that would be killed for yep. their adventurism. Uh-huh. Given the dangerous nature of overlapping Iranian and U.S. naval drills set to place in the same region at some point in the next weeks, the potential of another staged incident at sea will be exploited as a pretext for war remains a potent threat. Great. So Hooray. I know some of that was refer was 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 review for you and some of the Futurians, but for some not. Yep. And uh, just expect it. Expect something like that to happen, mm-hmm. and we'll be told who to blame. Mm-hmm. And only if you know your history <coughs> will you know otherwise. Yep. And you know what? That's what psychopaths do when they're in elected office. Yep. Sometimes why they even start wars in El Salvador. Well, tell me more. (laughs) Uh, This is from Salon.com. The roots of Bain Capital in El Salvador Civil War. Romney tapped El Salvador's wealthy families, including one linked to right-wing death squads. That hasn't come up in the debates yet. Nope. Uh... It'd, it'd be great if it, it'd be great if I, I'd love to be one of the people who ask questions. Can you imagine if they had you and me doing that? Yeah. Or Will Greer. I'd be like, okay, one question. I want to see everybody's ankles. And <laughs> yeah. they would begin yeah, Oculus. Yeah, we talked then, about that for a while. Yeah, and knew would open his ankle up, and it would be like it'd be have the little barbed wire, and and Rick Santorum would have no, the barbed. Yeah, Santorum would. Santorum would have the barbed yeah. wire, and Romney'd have the, you know, the holy underwear, and. Nude would probably have, like, women's clothing on or something underneath. And now, now. Well, I mean, you know. He's, he's not J. Edgar Hoover. Come on. Oh, that's true. Um, Ron Paul will probably have some sort of a tattoo of, like, a, you know, Ludwig von Mises. Yeah, you know, probably. Punching out canes or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the 10th Amendment. Yeah. At any rate, uh, here's the story. A significant portion of the seed money that created Mitt Romney's private equity firm, Bain Capital, was provided by wealthy oligarchs from El Salvador, including members of a family with a relative who allegedly financed riotous groups that used death squads during the country's bloody civil war in the 1980s. Yeah, that's not a surprise at all. Uh, Bain, the source of Romney's fabulous personal wealth, has been the subject of recent attacks in the Republican primary over allegations that Romney and the firm behaved like, in Rick Perry's words, vulture capitalists. Save a pretzel for the gas jets, is all I have to say. One TV spot denounced Romney for relying on foreign seed money from Latin America. Uh, but did not say where the money came from. In fact, Romney recruited in as investors wealthy Central Americans who were seeking a safe haven for their capital during a tumultuous and violent period in the region. Like so much about Bain, which is known for secrecy and has been dubbed a black box, all the names of the investors who put the money for the individual fund 
and for the individual fund in 1984 are not known. Much of what we do know was first reported by the Boston Globe in 1994 when Romney ran for U.S. Senate against Ted Kennedy. Mm -hmm. In 1984, Romney had been tapped by his boss at Bain, uh, a consulting firm, to create a spin-off venture capital firm called Bain Capital. A Costa Rican-born Bain official named Harry Strachan invited friends and former clients in Central America to a presentation about the fund with Romney in Miami. Uh, the group was impressed and signed up for 20% of the fund, according to Strachan's memoir. That was about $6.5 million, according to the Globe. Bain partners themselves were putting up half the money, according to Strachan. Thus, the Central American investors had contributed 40% of the outside capital. Back in 1984, wealthy Salvadoran families were looking for safe investments and violence and upheaval engulfed the country. That was because they, were, they, were, they kept sending people to... Uh, uh, the the school for the Americas, and they were coming back and doing all sorts of horrible things to villagers. Yeah, that who was unarmed. a school that I always just thought crazy liberals went to, like, you know, young people activists, you know. Yeah. Yeah, turns out they were right. Yep, you're right. Uh, the war which pitted leftist guerrillas against a right-wing government backed by the Reagan administration ultimately left over 70,000 people dead in the tiny nation before a peace deal was brokered by the United Nations in 1992. And I've read some of the stories there, man. It's horrible. Um, someday I'll do, like, the 12-hour presentation on false flag terrorism mm -hmm. and get into some of that stuff. It's just beyond horrible. Um, you know, people see that as little tiny countries, mm -hmm. and therefore it doesn't matter. Well, well... One of the things that the Lord has impressed on me over the last several years is that, you know, my brothers and sisters in the Lord are as close or, well, closer than family. That's how God mm -hmm. sees them. And one of the things that came out was there was a there was a uh, a village there that was 50 percent evangelical. Really? Wow. And, and um, they didn't want to have any. They didn't help the communists. Yeah. You know, they didn't help. Um, I think it's. Flack, I think, was there. Was yeah. there? Um, they didn't want to help the communists, guerrillas, and they didn't want to help the government. They just wanted to be left in peace to mm -hmm. do their village thing and live peaceable among all men. Well, a uh, a group of a group of guerrillas came in that were trained at the School of Americas, and just they they you know they took all of the they took all of the men into the into the into the church and interrogated them and then took them out into the field and blasted them all and then took all the psychopaths yeah and then took all the women out and then interrogated them and uh you know did lots of bad stuff to them and ended up killing them all and then bayoneted the children as a warning to the to the right to the, if you don't straight up then we're really going to get rough with you yeah to the well as a warning to the other gorillas and the other villages you know and uh, at the time, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was a reporter from the New York Times who went down there and saw all this stuff, and he was sort of decried by the Reagan administration as a as a nutcase that it was yeah. all fake. And it turns out everything he reported on was true. Hmm. Um, and you know, uh, at that time, a lot of a lot of ministries sort of backed up behind the Reagan administration on this and said, "No, this is just fake." Mm -hmm. You know, so they were caught in a peculiar position of defending a, um, defending, defending a, a, you know, a bunch of killers yeah. instead of their own, 
you know, brothers and sisters. So, uh, it makes me sad. Um, anyway, the notorious death squads were financed by members of the Salvadoran oligarchy and had close links to the country's military. Death squads, and there were a lot of them, kidnapped, tortured, and killed suspected leftists in urban areas and uh, suburban areas, fueling an insurgency that retreated to rural areas um, and waged war on the government from the countryside. The war, which lasted 12 years, triggered an exodus that brought more than one million Salvadorans to the United States. Um, there is no concrete evidence that any of, Bain's cap of Bain Capital's original investors were involved in these sort of activities, but the identities of some of the investors remain secret, and their family names, and there are numerous family names that raise questions. Four members of the DeSola family, very famous, and if you look into that stuff, were among the original Bain investors or limited partners in the company, the Globe reported. Their relative and one-time business partner, Orlando DeSola, was an important figure in El Salvador, uh, as an understatement. A well-known right-wing coffee grower uh, with an authoritarian vision for the country. Those are his own words. Hmm. Uh, DeSola spent time living in Miami, but was also a founding member of the right-wing Arena Party, led by a U.S.-trained former intelligence officer named Roberto de Abusson. Craig Pice, an investigative reporter then with the Albuquerque Journal, he's a pretty courageous dude, wrote a series on the rightish death squads based on extensive on-the-ground reporting in El Salvador in the early 80s with Lori Beckland of the L.A. Times, also pretty pretty mm -hmm. courageous, uh, while the death squads um, uh, were still active. Pais, who had won two Pulitzer Prizes and is now a private investigator in California, said that no one has produced any proof that DeSola directly funded the squads. That's not entirely true. Uh, however, Pai says he was in the inner circle of the group around Diabasson at the time that Diabasson was known to be involved in the death squads. De Sola's name appears in a February 1983 FBI cable as one of 29 people suspected by the State Department uh, officials of furnishing funds and weapons to Salvadoran death squads. Um, uh, De Sola's na name also turned up in a notebook seized from an aide to Diabasson named Saravia that details the finance of Dio Poisson's terrorist network, according to Pais. Uh, the Saravia the, the notebook lists weapons, purchases, and payments, and, and description of violent plots by rightists, including the assassination of El Salvador Archbishop Oscar uh, Arnolfo Romero in 1980. Um, when asked about it, DeSola denies that he ever helped finance any political violence, and he doesn't know what anybody's talking about. He could not be reached for comment. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's impossible to thoroughly explore the backgrounds of the original Bain investors because we don't know all of their identities, including the names of the four members of the DeSola family mentioned by the Globe. Neither the Romney camp, Bain Capital, nor Strachan, the Bain executives who recruited the Central Americans, responded to requests for comment. During, their first, during his first presidential bid in 2007, Romney more than once chatted the Central American investors in Bain while trying to woo Hispanic voters. In a speech in March uh, of that year of the Miami-Dade Lincoln Day Dinner, Romney actually specified five of the original partners in Bain Capital, but the DeSola family was not among those he named. And that August, he told the Miami Herald, 
The investors for the company that I started, Bain Capital, came largely from Latin America. My single, largest single investors came from El Salvador, Ecuador, Colombia, and Guatemala. And so I feel a deep kinship to the people of Latin America, especially the Escovedo family. I put that last part in. <laughs> I'm glad you made that clarifies editorial. Yeah. Ed- Somebody would show. hear that and go, the Escovedo family? Yeah. yeah. Well... You know, I I told you that uh, somebody who I know very well, um, who's fairly well to do, and their kids go to like sort of a an elite school, like high school and stuff, where they out in the country where mm-hmm. uh, they you know teach them fencing and horseback riding and mm-hmm. sort of the stuff the upper crust do, and and Obama's kids go there, and so does Pablo Escobar, mm-hmm. which I believe is like the drug kingpin there. And, Colombia and head of Mexico. Well, I mean, if you do a search for uh, for Grasso, Ray's embrace, yeah. you come up with a picture that in June 1990, Richard Grasso, the chair of the New York Times, yeah. is giving uh, the the general of I think FARC, you know, who was one of the mm-hmm. main main financers of Latin American terrorism, yeah. non governmental terrorism. Right. He's giving them an embrace so they can sit down and talk about. Uh, investing FARC money in the New York Stock Exchange. Hmm. It's just... Yeah. It's like, that's what they did, man. Yeah. You know, all of that drug money's got to go somewhere. It might as well go to the New York Stock Exchange. But it's a serious war on terror. Yep. You know. Well, you want to switch gears here again? Sure. Okay, this gets back to the political realm. I don't like course, politics. That sort of indirectly had a connection there with Romney here. Here's here's another guy. Yeah, you're right. The talking about Romney's drug connections didn't have anything yeah. to do with politics. Yeah. It, it's just so much more. Yeah. You know. Um. This this is a a, a story about Rick Santorum. It says Santorum eradicate the Muslims. This was on Infowars.com. Um. On Sunday, Ron Paul's campaign announced he would not contest Florida and will concentrate again on South Carolina and Nevada. Um, let me skip down through this. I just want to get down to, uh, yeah. It says, there's other reasons for Ron Paul not to contest Florida. It's considered evangelical territory, locked up by Rick Santorum, who placed a dismal fifth place in New Hampshire. Polls are notoriously inaccurate, even misleading, but a recent one indicates that the Christian Zionist vote will go to Rick Santorum, who has consistently pandered to evangelicals. Rick Santorum is the clear winner of Christian voters nationwide, receiving nearly, nearly the double the number of votes of any other candidate with 41%, a Christian Newswire press release states. In the weeks ahead, I would not be surprised to see Santorum emerge from South Carolina as the favorite candidate of Christian voters, although I think uh, Newt Gingrich is giving a run for it, mm-hmm. going into Florida and then Super Tuesday across America with Newt Gingrich a close second and nobody else close, predicted Chaplain Gordon James uh, Klingenschmidt of the Pray in Jesus Name Project. I think he was the one who got in trouble with the government because he prayed in Jesus' name. I think mm-hmm. it's the same guy. Um, how many How many would you guess are Christian Zionists in America? Tom a Byron. large portion. I think you'd have to really make a decision about what... How you define it. Yeah, you know, because Zionism can mean... I can uh, think of like five different things that Zionism. Well, means basically, it's like God's hand is on 
we have to support political leaders there. Yeah, right. if we support Israel, God likes us. Which gives them weapons. You know, and really, stuff like that's that. sort of like a heretical sort of thinking. If you get it, if you think about it, like supporting supporting a physical mm-hmm. a physical plot of land, people on a physical yeah. plot of land that are outside God's right. new covenant, a rebellion somehow makes somehow makes you more pleasing in God's eyes. Yeah. That's in, odd. In trying to stop God's plan that he's already expressed in his word for him. In other words, trying mm-hmm. to offer him an alternative. But yeah. regardless of that, they say here the number of so-called Christian Zionists is estimated at around 40 million in America. Mm. So that would be uh, a lower 13% or so of the public. Dang. Uh, and a lot more of the voting public. Um, <clears throat> Christian Zionism is support for the Jewish movement to regain possession of their ancient homeland, which derives from a Christian theology and understanding of the Bible. Writes Nathan Pitchford, Christian Zionism affects a large percentage of American Christianity. Pitchford continues, This is not a fringe movement, even in its more extreme varieties, but is embraced by a wide selection of Christians from various denominations within fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And certainly in the prophecy community that we've been a part of, it's probably the most extreme case. Mm -hmm. Since at least 2006, Christian Zionists have lobbied for an attack on Iran. The neocons who attached themselves to the Bush administration and ensconced themselves in the Pentagon were joined by the Christian Zionists in the effort to invade Iraq. Rick Santorum, more than any other GOP candidate, has exploited the fervent antipathy of the Christian Zionists toward Islam. While the establishment media has hounded Ron Paul over the red herring of supposedly racist newsletters attributed to him, it has all but ignored Santorum's hate-tinged diatribes directed against Islam. He says, in 2007, a few months after Santorum was ousted from the Senate in a landslide defeat, he accepted an invitation from right-wing provocateur David Horowitz, writes Max Blumenthal, who is no friend of Ron Paul and the Liberty Movement. During the event, Santorum said European Muslims will soon create Eurabia and displace European culture. The Shia brand of Islamic Islam wants to bring back the Mahdi, Santorum said. And do you know when the Mahdi returns? At the apocalypse, at the end of the world. You see, they are not interested in conquering the world. They are interested in destroying the world. This is Santorum talking about Muslims. In order to win the contrived war against Islam, Santorum says, here's what he says we should do about Islam. We must educate, engage, evangelize, and eradicate. Those are Christian values. Mm-hmm. You see the early church talking about eradication a lot. Oh, yeah, Jesus told us to yeah, eradicate. He carried a 45 in his pocket, that whole thing. Americans need to ask themselves if they want a president or even a presidential candidate who's talked dead seriously about engaging in a holy war with an entire religion consisting of hundreds of millions of adherents, writes blogger David Silverstein. Is this really what they want? Endless war against Islam? And for what? Republicans who like what they're hearing from Santorum these days, because he's a family values guy, should think whether these are the sort of family values they want for their president to espouse. It may not be the sort of President Americans want. However, it will be the kind they will get if they elect anybody but Ron Paul in November. Mitt Romney is not as outwardly demented as Rex Santorum appears to be, but we should keep in mind that he is a chameleon who follows the globalist script. And the global elite are calling for a war on Iran and plan to realize order out of color revolution chaos in the Arab and Muslim world. Great. 
Romney, along with Santorum, Gingrich, Perry, and recently dropped at Bachman, the entire GP, GOP cabinet field, with the exception of Ron Paul, have called for attacking Iran over the supposed threat of its fantasy nuclear weapons posed to Israel and the United States. Santorum, and especially Gingrich, are increasingly unpalatable uh, and will eventually be weeded out by the primary process. Well, we'll see. Save a pretzel for the gas jets. Gingrich is ahead of Romney right now, so, you know. Yeah. Romney, however, whom the corporate media portrays as homogenous as white bread, will be pushed to the forefront. He will stand behind uh, the ruling elite's agenda of destroying the United States economically and continuing endless wars against invented enemies in the Middle East and Asia. So, save a pretzel for the gas jets. What is that from? Uh, I think I showed you that little th- that bad lip reading thing. Okay. Where uh, uh, it has. Rick Perry. No, you know, I don't really. Oh, I'll have to show yeah. you that. Uh, if you're if you're out there listening in future quake, Futurian land. Yeah. Uh, if they're listening, or there could yeah. be zero people out there listening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Google Rick Perry bad lip reading. Okay. And uh, you'll hear him singing some interesting things. Well, tell us some interesting things. All righty. No, I don't hum it. I mean, read it to me. I should have specified that. Okay. This is from Boston.com. Former Liberian dictator Charles Taylor had U.S. spy agency ties. Okay. Why am I not surprised? I remember, what was the guy's name? It was like Prince Johnson was the guy he was fighting. Mm-hmm. And Charles Taylor had sort of everything sort of stacked on his side, and Prince Johnson was fighting him. Mm-hmm. And I can remember... Charles Taylor said that he had killed him mm-hmm. and said that he drug his his body, Prince Johnson, through the streets. Mm-hmm. And Prince Johnson all of a sudden came up with this radio thing saying, Charles Taylor is a liar. I am alive. <laughs> I mean, it was a really bloody, oh, bloody horrible, battle. That yeah. was a long time ago. Hacking each other to pieces and stuff. Right. Yeah. When Charles G. Taylor tied bedsheets together to escape from a second-floor window at the Plymouth House of Correction on September 15, 1985, he was more than a fugitive trying to avoid extradition. He was a sought-after source of American intelligence. After a quarter century of silence, the U.S. government has confirmed what has long been rumored. Taylor, who would become president of Liberia and the first African leader tried for war crimes, worked with U.S. spy agencies during his rise as one of the world's most notorious dictators. Awesome. The disclosure on the former president comes in response to a request filed by the Globe six years years ago under the Freedom of Information Act. The Defense Intelligence Agency, the Pentagon's spy arm, confirmed its agents and CIA agents worked with Taylor beginning in the early 1980s. So it was basically as he was coming up to be president. Mm-hmm. They may have stuck with him longer than they should have, but maybe he was providing something useful. Hmm, hmm that's awesome. Yeah. A senior fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center in Washington and an authority on Taylor's reign and the guns for diamonds trade that was the base of his power. Or maybe they were there training him. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. Right. The Defense Intelligence Agency refused to reveal any details about the relation, saying uh, saying doing so would harm national security. That's what they always say. Yep, I know. It would hurt their security. Yep. 
Taylor, 63, pleaded innocent in 2009 to multiple counts of murder, rape, attacking civilians, and deploying child soldiers during a child a civil war in neighboring Sierra Leone while he was president of Liberia uh, from 1997 to 2003. After a proceeding that lasted several years, the three-judge panel in the U.N. Special Court for Sierra Leone is now reviewing tens of thousands of pages of evidence, including the testimony of over about of, of about 100 victims, former rebels, and Taylor himself, whose testimony lasted several months. We hope the verdict will come in the first quarter of this year, said Solomon Moriba, a spokesman for the court in The Hague. Moriba said any relationship Taylor had with American intelligence was not related to his case before the court, but those who investigated the atrocity says it might explain why some U.S. officials seem reluctant to use their influence to bring Taylor to justice. By, by the way, this is why you see our government does not like to have trials. Mm-hmm. Why they like to have the authority to be able to detain people without trial, without public trial. Mm-hmm. Because suddenly all of their dirty-handed stuff comes out in these trials. Mm-hmm. And I think the last time they really supported trials really big time was like Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. And since then, there bears no support for that. Mm-hmm. That's why they had to kill Bin Laden instead of capture him and put him on trial, because then all this kind of stuff comes out. <laughs> I think the, I think the intelligence community's past relationship with Taylor made some in the U.S. government squeamish about a trial, despite oh. knowing how bad of an actor he was, uh, said uh, Prosecutor White in an interview. Taylor's lawyer in the war crimes trial, uh, Courtney Griffiths did not respond to several calls or emails seeking comment. The Pentagon's response to the Globe states that the details of Taylor's role on behalf of the spy agencies are contained in dozens of secret reports, at least 48 separate documents covering several decades. Um, However, the exact duration and scope of the relationship remains hidden. The Defense Intelligence Agency said the details are exempt from public disclosure because the need to protect sources and methods... uh, safeguard the inner workings of American spycraft, and shield the identities of government personnel. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And their accountability. Yeah, and their accountability, yeah. Former intelligence officials who agreed to discuss the covert ties only on the condition of anonymity, and specialists, including Farah, believe Taylor probably was considered useful for gathering intelligence about the activities of Muammar Gaddafi. During the 1980s, the ruler of Libya was blamed for sponsoring such terrorist acts as the Pan-American Flight 103 bombing over Lockerbie, which is, there's a, there's a lot of people who think that, that he didn't have anything to do with it, mm-hmm. uh, and for fomenting guerrilla wars across Africa. Taylor testified that after fleeing Boston, he, was, he recruited 168 men and women for the National Patriotic Front in Liberia and trained them in Libya. Uh, over time, the former official said Taylor may have also been seen as a source for information on broader issues in Africa, from illegal arms trade to the activities of the Soviet Union, which, like the United States, was seeking allies on the continent as part of the broad struggle of the Cold War. Liberia, too, was of special interest to Washington. The country was founded in 1847 by freed American slaves who named its capital Monrovia after President James Monroe. The U.S. Embassy was was among the largest in the world, covering two full city blocks, and U.S. companies had significant investments in the country, including a Firestone tire factory and a Coca-Cola bottling plant. Mm -hmm. A former ally of Taylor's, Prince Johnson, told a government commission in Liberia in 2008 that he believed U.S. intelligence had encouraged Taylor to overthrow the government in Liberia, 
which had fallen out of favor with Washington for banning all political opposition. Taylor's ties to Boston uh, reach back four decades, and we could go on hmm. and on and on, but, you know, basically he's a bad dude. Hmm. Bad guy that the CIA was hanging with. Yeah. No surprise. Yeah. Yep. Is there any that they aren't hanging with? Ron Paul? Well, I mean, bad dudes. Oh. Hitler. <laughs> well, I think it's because he's somewhere else right now. By that, I mean South America. Uh, yeah, dig and dig. He'd be pretty old if he was. Yeah, way up in his 90s anyway. Yeah, he'd be old. Um, but here's a little, little little short deal. I might supplement it here. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, this really is more almost like just a notice for people to go look up their own thing. Um, a friend that uh, um, Senator Paul Wellstone knew uh, told him that 911 was staged. Who? This was from before its news. Remember Senator Paul Wellstone died in a plane crash? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. There's a documentary about this that I'd really like to get. It looks fascinating. Um, Senator Paul Wellstone has said, he says, there's so many things going on regarding 911 that just don't make sense. Um, And his friend says, I asked him how his week had been. He said, it's been tough. Vice President called me and told me to get on their bandwagon or there would be serious ramifications in Minnesota. And he said, and this is what Cheney told him. And stop sticking your nose in the 911. There are some rumors going around, but we're going to get to the bottom of this. And when Paul made this statement, there were about 10 military veterans standing around us, and he spoke to them about 911. He said, there are so many things going on about 911 that don't make sense. Wellstone knew 911 was staged. Wellstone was after 911. Hmm. This is from Pat O'Reilly, Wellstone's close friend. Although warned by Dick Cheney to toe the line, Senator Paul Wellstone questioned the official version of 911. For that, he paid with his life. Um, and and then uh, this documentary that's coming out, and I don't have a name of the documentary on here. Uh, maybe I can find that later or put it on a, on a link. Um, it says... Uh, um, Let's see here. I, th- I think I'm going to leave that. Uh, um, it talks here about the, the Joint Operations Command, JSOC. It says it's a special wing of our special operations community that is set up independently. They do not report to anybody except in the Bush-Cheney days. They reported directly to Cheney in his office. Congress has no oversight. It's an executive assassination ring, essentially, that's been going on and on and on. That's an earlier story about how Cheney had his own assassination ring. But um, the documentary, I'll see if I can find a link to it. You can look it up about Wellstone. Mm-hmm. Basically, there was a lot of strange stuff. I've seen the trailers for it and just a little bit of it. Um, a lot of strange stuff going on about his crash. And a lot of stuff that's unresolved, like it may have been a hit down on him. May have. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, that was just a quick thing. Can I, can I have another one here that's less than a page? Yeah, man. Just going to knock these out. Yep. I don't know if you've if you've known about this or not. It's called Rise of the State of Judea. Hmm. This is from IsraelToday.co.il. Okay, news to me. Israel Today, um, which is a periodical over there in, mm-hmm. in a magazine in Israel. It says uh, co- covered in our January uh, 2012 issue, the growing phenomenon of price tag acts of vandalism 
by some Jewish residents of Judea and Samaria, angry over the ongoing threat to their homes by hostile Arab gangs and international diplomatic pressure, uh, and the Israeli government's seeming apathy toward their plight. Um, recently, the situation got top Israeli officials talking about the possibility of civil war after a price tag attack was perpetuated against an Israeli army base. It also resurrected talk of splitting from Israel and establishing a separate state of Judea. Uh, okay. Did you know anything about this? No, this is all news to me, so brother. The source in Samaria tells Israel today that the state of Judea is already a de facto reality. There is already a Jewish uprising happening in Judea and Samaria that the media and government are doing their best to hide from the public, said the source. The idea of splitting from Israel is gaining for the sake of Israel as well, our contact said. More and more settlers understand that they are here despite the Israeli establishment, and they see more and more differences between themselves and the Israelis. This is especially true of a younger generation of Jews in Judea and Samaria who do not see themselves as Israeli and would be ready to die for the land. The idea of a state of Judea has been around... This is all new information to me. Yeah, well, good. Finally, we're showing up to Future Quake today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The idea of the state of Judea has been around since 1988 when settler rabbis proposed it in response to PLO leader Yasser Arafat's Declaration of Independence. Prominent rabbis began revisiting the idea in the wake of the Gaza pullout of 2005 and stated that if a large-scale withdrawal were ever ordered for Judea and Samaria, they would put the state of Judea plan in motion. With the ongoing demonization of the Jewish residents of Judea and Samaria, both by the international community and by the left-wing institutions of their own nation, it would seem a forced uprooting is no longer required, and the splitting of Israel into two separate Jewish states is already underway. So, while external diplomatic pressure may ultimately fail to divide the land of Israel, it is succeeding in dividing the people of Israel, and that is a point for prayer that is often overlooked as we focus on the former threat. Hmm. So, pretty heavy. Yeah, then the question comes, well, which group do you identify with more, if that matters, you know? Um, I'm I'm assuming the one they're talking about in Judea would be more hawkish, like they would be ready to go fight to the nail. Maybe. About, you know, keeping the people residents of the land. And Who knows? They think the other Israelis are too much peaceniks. Hmm. So. I don't know. I don't know. There you go. We got time for one more. Put that in your pipe and smoke. Yeah, we got time. Okay. However, whatever you got. Um, how I many? Got how many you got left? Two more. Two more. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, give us one. Okay. Um, this is from uh, uh, this is from Virtual Mentor, but originally comes from the AMA. Mm-hmm. Should participation in vaccine clinical trials be mandated? Few would argue with Bill Gates when he describes vaccination as the most effective and cost-effective health tool ever invented. To date, vaccination has saved many lives and has the potential to save millions more, especially if vaccines are developed against the big three, malaria, HIV, and TB. Vaccine development, however, comes at a price that is not only financial but societal. The lack of animal models that can reliably predict vaccine Efficacy means that development still unavoidably relies on testing of novel vaccines in healthy individuals. Given the often unquantifiable risks to the recipients of vaccines in early stages of development, 
clinical trials have traditionally relied on informed and consenting volunteers who appreciate the potential risks but still choose to participate for altruistic reasons, which is not entirely true. A lot of times they give prisoners, they ask prisoners, like, hey, we've got to test this healthy vac- this vaccine on people. We need healthy folks. You want to do it? We'll give you some prison benefits, give you better food or something. Yeah. They go, oh, yeah. But relying on altruism alone to facilitate clinical trials is potentially unstable and ethically contentious. In recent decades, there has been a distressing decline in the number of healthy volunteers who participate in clinical trials, a decline that has the potential to become a key rate-limiting factor in vaccine development. Reasons for this decline are unclear but are likely to be multifaceted. One familiar problem is the payment of volunteers, as in they don't do it. To date, the relatively meager compensation that participants often receive could be seen to belittle and undervalue the contribution of these individuals to global uh, health. The modest financial remuneration commonly provided often means that students and the unemployed make up the bulk of volunteers as well as prisoners, which they don't want to put in here. Uh, This situation, few would judge to be fair or ethical. However, it's hard to increase volunteer payment without creating financial incentives. Danger money is frowned upon as an inducement that inevitably clouds an individual's appreciation of risk, limiting the likelihood that consent is informed. Um, Scrolling on down here. Um, Man, I should have just highlighted it. But anyway, the point is, is that they're going to they go on here to argue that mandating vaccines would be the thing. And here we are. A more palatable and realistic option to all of these possibles uh, is mandated choice. In this case, individuals would be required by law to state in advance their willingness to participate in vaccine trials. The advantage of this system is that it could be it could identify a large cohort of willing volunteers from which participants could be recruited rapidly without jeopardizing individual autonomy. It would encourage an open, non-coercive philosophy for tackling, tackling societal challenges without compromising individual freedom or public trust in the healthcare system. But perhaps more importantly, as a society, we need to evaluate our perception of vaccine, of vaccination. Any successful vaccine program, by its very nature, takes a once-feared illness out of the public eye. This means that the benefits of immunization become forgotten, while side effects and small numbers of individuals fill the headlines. It is all too easy for a sensationalist and unfounded stories, such as claiming a link between MMR, vaccine, and autism, <laughs> which has actually been proved in, in uh, uh, court, I believe, to instead take root in the society's collective psyche. Ultimately, a crucial public health intervention as vaccine development becomes devalued. Uh, perhaps lessons can be learned from organ donation, where apathy and ignorance may be as much to blame for low donation rates as well as conscientious objection. Well, there's also the, the, the contingent thing that uh, uh, doctors who participate in organ removal get kickbacks. So there's a financial incentive for them to remove your, you know, for you to be dead and remove your, you know. That's capitalism. Yep. If a concerted effort were made to increase public awareness of the success of vaccination, the potential of novel vaccines to improve global health drastically, and the important contribution that individuals can make by volunteering for studies, perhaps mandatory enrollment would not even need to be considered. Mandatory enrollment. Vaccinations, buddy. Well, 
that's just an extension of Obamacare. Yeah. I, you know, I don't like the idea of mandatory anything, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, that's just a power trip of one person over another. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, is that it? That's it. That's it. So you just crescendoed. I know. You you end with a bang. Chaboom! That reminded me. That's, dun, dun, dun! That was like... <laughs> that was like... Um, that that was who was it? Uh, Ergen Kainer used to preach that way. I remember seeing him at Thomas Road Baptist Church, Jerry mm-hmm. Falwell's church. He would preach, and then he would just keep crescendoing louder and louder, and he'd make this big, you know, intense statement, and then just grab his Bible and walk away from the pulpit, and everybody cheer, you know. Yeah. Maybe we need to figure out how we can do that. If we had like a gong, our cymbals would be fine, but a gong yeah. would be good. Mm-hmm. Well, would you like to hear about the Queen, Queen's Palace, Operation Queen's Palace, and the Queen of Heaven? Queen Palace. Yeah, I was getting ready to do some last-minute editing, judging for our time. Sorry, that's what I was yeah. looking down here for, trying to do to be mindful we're of kinda, time. We're kind of full up on time, are we not? Or? Well, we're, we've, we're, we've still got some time, but okay. uh, um, you want me to read a little bit about it? Yeah, why don't, you, why don't you do one more, and then we'll okay. hit it. You well, know. we'll cut her off, okay. Yep. Um, you sure you don't want to cover your last story? No, no, go ahead. Okay. This is uh, this story goes back a ways, okay? Mm-hmm. So I first admit it. This goes back like at the end of the last decade. So we're talking about just over a decade ago. But it's an interesting thing to give a little window on guys like C. Peter Wagner mm-hmm. and the uh, Apostolic Reformation folks. Mm-hmm. He's sort of the founder of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And... This is one of the more interesting things that they did. And I think I found out about this from a non-Christian link where I looked this up, Mm -hmm. and it really fascinated me. This is some memos that he had prepared for his internal people about what he and the other prayer warriors were doing um, and prophets and others to to do some. You know how you hear about prayer mapping and other kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, this is one of the more extreme ones. I thought you'd be interested. It's called Operation Queen's Palace, also known as Love Turkey. Uh, Sounds. I think I don't really know what to say. I think it's like like Love Turkey, but you know, Love Turkey. Um, A proposal for a major international prayer journey and prophetic act, and this was done September 20 through 30, 1999, sponsored by the International Spiritual Warfare Network. And and again, I just thought this was sort of interesting to sort of get into their thinking because they're. They're so prominent these days in our political acts. Oh, hey, check this the, out. What? Uh, it looks like Brigitte Gabrielle might be getting investigated by the FBI yeah. for financial irregularities and hate speech. Well, interesting. I'm sure it's the Muslims that are doing it. Yeah. Uh, if I can proceed here, it says uh, the purpose of this was to pray the blessing of God on the people of Turkey and other nations in the 1040 window through prophetic intercession at the home base of the Queen of Heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip through some parts. This is all good, but it's just too long. Talked a little bit about Diana and the seed of Satan uh, in Revelation 2.13, mm-hmm. about the importance of Turkey um, and, and the temple for this. Um, uh, is, uh, let me skip down here a little bit. Um Emphasis was a real part of spiritual struggle. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think when you recognize it was a center of pagan worship, it was the second biggest city in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it puts a whole new set of eyes on the Book of Ephesians. 
when I talk about people who are used to dealing with principalities and powers. Um, it says, while we were in Turkey, Doris, I think that's his wife, C.P. Wagner's wife, mm-hmm. and I learned a great deal about the Queen of Heaven. This principality is so powerful and so malicious that, as far as I know, her worshipers are the only ones in the Bible for whom God prohibits prayer. Jeremiah 7.16 says, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry of prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Why? The women knead their dough and make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah 7.18 Now, uh, Pastor Chris and I actually met women who made cakes for the Queen of Heaven mm-hmm. in Montreal at the UN meeting, who told us that's Sweet. what they did. Perfect. Same thing. Um, ironically, we had prayer <laughs> That's sort of interesting as you read this. Almost every major prayer initiative that we've held in connection with the Spiritual Warfare Network in different parts of the world has surfaced the Queen of Heaven in one form or another. She has succeeded much too much in spreading her power to keep uh, people from the gospel, perhaps more than any other principality of darkness. Which, by the way, um, right now, even today as we speak, that's a main part of their talk is the Queen of Heaven mm-hmm. as far as her being behind homosexuality and other kind of things right now in their talk. It says, other th- the other things that we learned, is from C. Peter Wagner, was that she is at the spiritual roots of Islam in the form of the moon goddess. We heard that Muslim leaders will not allow archaeological digs in Mecca because the connection between the moon goddess and Islam would then be highlighted scientifically while Islam desires to maintain its public image of monotheism. The symbol of the moon goddess is the crescent moon, which appears in every mosque as flags. Um, as we prayed for the Turks, we knew the power of the Queen of Heaven had to be broken in order for the gospel to spread to Turkey. Uh, Doris sensed us very strongly when we prayed near the altar of Diana. The evil power is still there and is very strong. Uh, while there, we realized something else the first time. We had been very familiar with the multi-breasted idol of Diana, but closer examination shows that she wears the crescent, the symbol of the moon goddess around her neck. Oh, she's, she's actually a Muslim. Well, that's what they're saying, yeah. Which, she was always associated with the moon. I mean, that was always from antiquity. Um, disguised as the Virgin Mary. When the Apostle John went to Ephesus, she t- he took Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him while on the cross. Jesus had commended his mother to John. In Ephesus, Mary, by then undoubtedly a grandmother, died. An ornate shrine in today's Ephesus marks where she reportedly lives. People today daily people kneel in the shrine to worship her idol. At the center of world Christianity shifted from Ephesus to Rome, Mary began to be exalted, worship, and prayed to as a mediator to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not surprising then that the Roman Catholic Church would choose Ephesus as the place to convene an ecumenical council in 431, in order to declare officially that Mary is the mother of God. Uh, this began a steady increase of Mary worship through the centuries and lasting until today. Um, it says in August 97, a Newsweek cover story, over 4 million petitions have been received by the Vatican to declare Mary co-redemptress with, with Jesus. Um, Whoa. If this becomes dogma, all Catholic prayers to Jesus will be expected to go first to Mary. Uh, Pope John Paul II has declared worshiper Mary, and he bows before her and prays to her as mediator. Um Mary is a skillful, adaptive deception of the Queen of Heaven. Since Diana became worthless after the spiritual warfare of Paul and John, the Queen of Heaven needed another disguise. When I suggested this to Hector Taurus after returning from Turkey, he said, Of course, don't you realize how many pictures and idols of the Virgin Mary in Latin America have her connected to the crescent moon, the symbol of the moon goddess? 
He says, this was news to me, but as soon as I looked, there it was. In fact, one of the frequent titles given to Mary is Queen of Heaven. Doris and I were horrified when in 96 we visited Rome for the first time and took a guided tour of the Vatican. We had not been inside the building for more than 10 minutes when we were startled to see a life-size statue of Diana of the Ephesians on public display. Now here's the vision for Operation Queen's Palace, okay? Cindy Jacobs, we've talked to before, head of Generals International, yeah. one of the current apostles, main ones, mm-hmm. was in our home on Labor Day when we debriefed about Turkey. As we were describing what we'd learned, she said, For several years we've been doing battle against the Queen of Heaven in many parts of the world. The time has come for a frontal assault. Why not call together um, the Spiritual Warfare Network intercessors from the nations of the world for a massive prayer initiative right where one of her center of powers lies? It was one of those electric moments. Instantly, Doris, Cindy, and I knew that it was God's will and Operation Queen's Palace was born. Uh, I immediately sensed that this was the revelation, the hidden manna that God had given me in Pergamum. We agreed that before we shared this vision with others, we would consult with Bobby Byerly and Chuck Pierce, uh, our prayer leaders, for their discernment. Um, okay, so anyway, this proceed forward. I'm going to skip through the narrative a little bit. Um, okay, now I'm going to lay hands on you and prophecy. Two midgets and a donut coming with a big snake rolling a donut. Here we go with the one, two, three, and blah, 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 It gets more interesting here. Um, I can't take it. It says, um, these people just sort of like make it up as they go. Yeah. It says, uh, Doris and I hired a Turkish guide for our prayer journey to Ephesus and Pergamum. Um, in Ephesus, we entered a huge amphitheater where the silversmiths who were selling Diana's idols had precipitated a riot at the time Paul was evangelizing, evangelizing mm-hmm. Ephesus. Um, okay. And actually, something that I, I will have to tip my hat to them, a lot of this was reconciliation of Muslims for what was done during the Crusades. Oh, well, good. Which I, you know, that part I can, I can uh, be thankful for. Um, it says, uh, okay, Operation Queen's Palace will be coordinated so that each team of intercessors will accomplish their prayer acts wherever they might be in time to arrive at Ephesus on the same day. Now, let me let me skip forward to where it even gets more interesting. Um, uh, let's see here. Okay, it says, I have a hypothesis, and that is only that at the moment, um, that the Queen of Heaven... Um, oh, let me skip this. Virtually every group associated with the Spiritual Warfare Network around the world has come across local, regional, and national principalities which trace their spiritual power directly to the Queen of Heaven. The Virgin Aparecida in Brazil, the Goddess of Mercy in Malaysia, Ramona in Hemet, California, Amaratsu, Ogami in Japan, and Pacamama in the Andes are obvious examples that could be multiplied by the hundreds. Let's refer to these as the princesses of the Queen's Worldwide Court. I have a hypothesis, and it's only dead at the moment, that the Queen of Heaven is the demonic principality to whom Satan has delegated the primary responsibility of implementing his purpose to blind the minds of unbelievers to the gospel. That's actually, uh, that's totally unbiblical. We, well, can, get, we can get into, sure. yeah, I'm sorry. Is that the first thing unbiblical you've heard so far? Yeah. Um, if this process, <laughs> if this hypothesis is correct... Operations Queen Palace can be considered a culmination of the prayers of the United Prayer Track and Spiritual Warfares. Okay. Um, 
Okay, let, let me skip to the, the more most aggressive part of it. Uh, operation, uh, the role of Operation Ice Castle. I guess this is the most interesting one. Okay. Anna Mendez, her first name is Anna Mendez de Luca Datina, is the person appointed by Harold Caballeros as the coordinator of Spiritual Warfare Network for Southern Mexico. She and her husband, uh, pastor of the New Anointing Church in Mexico City, uh, are, are involved in Anna's proven world-class leader in prophetic intercession. Um, it says she was converted years ago as a high priestess of voodoo. Uh, she's known the powers of the invisible world in a deeply personal way. Um, okay, let's see. Let me tell you the, what what they decide to do here. Um, they go to, let's see here. Okay, God spoke to us that he was going to release judgment upon the iniquity and and over the false religious systems of the world. He was going to bring down the foundations of mystery Babylon the Great. Uh, this is the Queen of Heaven. The ancient name of Everest, Mount Everest, okay, uh, is Sagamarta, meaning Mother of the Universe. Okay, here, here's what I was looking for. Okay, while in prayer in her tower, she had a prayer tower, okay? Prayer tower? I don't know if you've got one, but she had a prayer tower. Like a pyramid or something? I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, while in prayer tower, the Holy Spirit cl- clearly showed her that a principal stronghold over the 1040 window was located in on Mount Everest in Nepal, and that she was to lead a team of intercessors in a frontal attack on this power of darkness who was none other than the Queen of Heaven. So that's where she's living, by the way, Queen of Heaven on on Mount uh, Everest. Okay. Um, before deciding to go, she sought the agreement with several people, including Cindy Jacobs, uh, George Otis, uh, Chuck Pierce, and the Wagners. Great. Okay, for three weeks at the end of '97, people who were totally rock solid. We called Operation Ice Castle underway. Are you just making stuff up? And and I, no, I'm, got like I'm sorry. I, I, I was I forgot to highlight some of this. That's why I had to skip around. But uh, it says here that uh, I, come clean, Mike. I think Anna, you just wrote down some random no, names. No, 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 and no, no, no. Just like let, let making me, stuff. I'm up. at a good party. Anna, her husband, and Ronnie Chavez led a team of eleven who operated out of the base camp at the foot of Mount Everest at 18,000 feet. Doris Wagner led a team of eight English speakers operating out of the Everest View Hotel at 13,000 feet, and a third team of five Spanish speakers from Mexico and Colombia that were also there. Um, this is not So they're all there right on the side of Mount Everest. Um, this is not the place to recount the details of what happened during that awesome prayer journey, which was probably the highest level one undertaken in the decade, but also uh, spiritually. Um, it's, it says, uh, after five days of prayer, an incredible climbing anointing came over the team. A climbing anointing? Yeah. You know, climbing it's anointing. It's in the third Corinthians. I, the, I can't. I, and I God can't led us through the ice fall, the most dangerous, difficult, and technically exacting part of the Everest descent, with no God but him and no help other than from his angels. The angels were there. Helping. So there weren't any porters. There weren't any nobody. No, no guys. Cindy Jacobs is up there climbing with an ice so, pick. And they you don't want to cross her if she can do this. After many hours of crossing crevasses and climbing ice walls, so you know this is where our apostolic folks have been going. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they're nothing. Says we were about to reach the point where we had located the seat of the Queen of Heaven. Mm-hmm. So they're almost at the physical side of the Queen of Heaven. Mm-hmm. 
At that moment, the fury of the devil was unleashed, and a huge avalanche broke loose above us, sending megatons of ice and snow crashing our way. At the last minute, a huge crevasse in front of us swallowed up the avalanche, saved our lives, and we only had to deal with the life-threatening resulting cloud of ice for about ten minutes. We continued toward our goal, and when we arrived, we took the, th- the throne that the Lord showed us. So they got a hold of the Queen of Heaven's throne. Like physically. Yeah. Prophesying against the powers of darkness and declaring the judgment of God on the whore of Babylon and the false religion. Uh, in the same evening, God spoke a clear and strong order. Go out from this mountain tomorrow at 11 a.m. because I'm going to destroy everything. The next day, we dismantled the camp in a great hurry and left base camp. And the last of our 36 beasts of burden, or yaks, came out. Not one, but all three mountain slopes which surrounded the base camp. Everest, Loha, and Nupsi simultaneously collapsed in the greatest avalanche ever seen in Everest. Base so, so these mountains actually collapsed? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Base camp was uh, totally buried under the snow and enormous falling clouds of ice. The climbing season was closed, and the only flag waving on the top of the world was the one planted by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It says CNN carried the story, but obviously had no video footage to show. Anna has a video of the avalanche. Several climbing teams were in base camp. We received word that the Koreans were killed, but they have not heard of the Italians. She had a video. I hope she took video of the of the Queen of Heaven's throne. I would love be, to see that. See that. Um, Anna points to some world events, what occurred in the last two weeks after the prophetic act at the throne of the Queen of Heaven, which she senses have some connection. This is what back what they saw, the meaning after it. The nation of Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation in the world, caught on fire and began to burn on that very day. An earthquake destroyed the Basilica of Assisi in Italy, uh, the place where the Pope called a meeting for the unity of all world religions. Hurricane Paulini destroyed the infamous Temple of Baal Christ in Acapulco. Princess Diana of England died. So now we know why she died. It's because they were up there on the Sound of Everest, representing the crown of England, to whom Mount Everest was consecrated. And Mother Teresa, one of the most visible advocates of exalting Mary, died in India. It says Operation Ice Castle was kept confidential and known only by a relatively few people. Now now more. Mm-hmm. Still, Future Wake audience is pretty few people. So. Only a small number of intercessors was Both needed for them. the journey. Yeah. yeah, And there was a good bit of apprehension to the possible consequences if the plan became known both in the visible and invisible world. Obviously, the number of lives lost on Everest of the years was an important consideration. Incidentally, the bodies of uh, foreigners killed on Everest are not removed, but left there as sacrifices to the spirits in the mountains. No, they're left there because it's really cold. And you can't hardly get them down. Operation Queen's Palace is different. The Lord has shown us that large numbers of Christians will be needed to do the job. If they've already taken down the throne, I don't know why, but... But those who go to Turkey and those who minister their own cities and regions. Uh, a prophecy came from one of the home base intercessors praying for Operation Ice Castle. Before hearing in her report, she said in prayer, God showed her that the teams in Nepal were up against a dragon, which was confirmed, and that their prayer assault was sending arrows into the dragon, which were causing mortal wounds, and that the dragon knew exactly what was happening to it, but that the dragon did not have strength to do anything about it. I cannot help but wonder if the weakened state of the dragon, the queen of heaven, Satan himself, might be due to the massive and aggressive praying for the 1040 window. So, sorry that was haphazard, but I thought it's hard to beat that story about some people we knew politically today that 
this was, you know, 13 years ago they were through the Queen of Heaven. There they found her throne there on the side of Mount Everest. Did you know anything about that? I missed out on that one. So, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Caused an avalanche. Sweet. Well, any other words you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, last one in the bag, man. Kind of kooky. Last tomorrow's tremors, last that they have to endure us. Yep. No and more. In our our poor reading of stories and Russian names we stumbled through. Yeah, no more people getting irate over something that stuck in their craw. And, yeah. You know. All well, they stuff. can go back and listen to the archives and get, get irate again. Up again. Get nostalgically irate. You yeah. Know? You're gonna have to change your email like by one letter. Yeah, that's true. No. Doctor Future One at futurequake.com. Well, you know the stories we picked were ones off the beaten path typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope people. Grew out of it. I know a lot of people of our listeners were disappointed that we were having interviews every week. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it wasn't much chance for us to do much talking then. Maybe that's part of why they missed the interviews. But um, but I hope there's some people who enjoyed our review of the news. Yeah. And I know I did. I learned a lot with what me you shared too. with me. Likewise. And uh, I'm sure I'll continue to learn from you many other ways. I doubt it. What's but that's on. okay. I appreciate the, <laughs> appreciate the, uh, the boost. Yep. Uh, someone else we can boost is our friend Merv, who can tell all our listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake. Mm-hmm. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. All right. That's the end of the road, buddy. End of the road. We have a prophecy-related interview next week. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have our finale right after that. Yep. So we we got two more shows to go. Go frontoffuturequake.com. Announcements there. There's books. There's gear like what uh, Brother Tom's wearing here, and Sporting. cups and cups. What he's drinking dog, out of dog cups. Get get your big poster for the Futurequake mural. Futurequake beer stein. Yep. Beer stein. No. It's oh. it's a ceramic uh, mug. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a big old stein. Though. Take it with you to heaven. You can drink fruit of the vine there. How about that? There you go. Does that sound good? Mm-hmm. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we love you so much. Thank you for being with us. And until next week, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake.